0: This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law.
1: To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing.
0: Not so much a tin ear as a wall of concrete.
1: Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience.
0: Women who have put up
1: with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had
2: a gut for I have had an absolute gutful.
1: Hello there and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvalis, the host of Radio National Drive and Afternoon Briefing, joining you from Wurundjeri Country.
2: And I'm Frank Kelly from RM Breakfast. I'm joining you for yet another week from my lounge room in lockdown on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And soon we'll be joined by ABC's political editor Andrew Proben, to talk about the events of the week. It's been busy, pretty much all COVID, including Kevin Rudd's <laughs> spectacular intervention in the quicker than expected rollout of the Pfizer vaccines and plenty more. But but first PK. Here in Greater Sydney, we are now in lockdown for at least two more weeks, at least, which doesn't really match the brand or the inclination of the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian. You know, she'd been, we've talked about this before, hailed by the federal government in the past as the gold standard for managing outbreaks without locking down the whole show because here in New South Wales, we do have a very sharp testing and tracing team. Congratulations to them.
1: And they're still sharp.
2: They are still sharp. It's just that the job has got much harder. I I won't say the Premier's standards have slipped because what's happened here is we have this very contagious Delta variant on the loose in New South Wales, which has forced the government to lock down. Criticism that the Premier was too slow to come to that is probably fair, but she's done it now. Her government was asking for financial help from the federal government more than a week ago and were rebuffed initially. But this week, we saw Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg bow to the inevitable and, put their shoulder to the wheel with New South Wales unveiling a new COVID rescue package, which will now be the template for any future lockdown for any state and territory forced to shut. Victoria, though, PK, not impressed. Your Premier, Dan Andrews, rushed out a statement after that, saying, in contrast, Victoria had to, quote, beg for scraps of support from the federal government and, quote, again, it shouldn't take a crisis in Sydney for the Prime Minister to take action, Be up, but we are seeing the same double standard time and time again. His job, according to Dan Andrews, is not to be the Prime Minister for New South Wales.
1: Ouch. Ouch, indeed. And those comments from the Victorian government have not gone down well with the federal government, not surprisingly. There is a sort of war of words between both sides here. And here's Josh Frydenberg's response. Well, the Victorian government, unfortunately, is being petulant, childish and playing politics here because the facts tell a very clear story. What we offered New South Wales for the first two weeks of the lockdown is exactly what Victoria received.
2: Petulant, childish and playing politics. What do you think Victorians think of um, the federal government's response, PK? I mean, if you'd break it down dollar for dollar, the federal treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, is correct, but is it about the tone? What are people in your state thinking?
1: Okay, so I've got very, very... You speak for the whole state. Yes, yes. As the um, unelected Premier of Victoria on the radio, look, no of course Victorians don't have one view on this of course not uh, they have a range of views and uh, you know that makes sense but there is obviously a mood in any place and the mood i think does match the view of Dan Andrews on this one um and that and that i say as a as an avid listener of talkback radio as an avid participant in my own communities and they are diverse communities across melbourne The view is that the federal government has provided different support and different political rhetoric when it comes to New South Wales versus Victoria. Now, while it becomes a political stoush, the problem for Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg and the federal government is it doesn't matter that they think that they're having a stoush with or responding to the Victorian Premier. It's really just about him because Victorians feel like the federal government has given them a different treatment. So let's go to the detail. The federal government says, well, actually, we've given the same support. And as you say, Fran, the facts say, yeah, okay, that might be true. But the problem is in the kicking and the screaming bit of the story. When Victoria went into that two-week circuit breaker lockdown, right, and it wasn't that long ago, they had to literally beg. They did. They were begging and they got rebuffed. And then finally, there was something announced, but it wasn't kind of with great fanfare and cooperative uh, cooperative feel. It was set up in a pretty antagonistic kind of way, right? And then when New South Wales got the support they did, there was never any kind of attack on the way they'd gone into this lockdown. There was never any apprehension about going into the deal. And Sure, the support have been, has been set up to sort of ratchet up, right? So at the three-week mark, you don't have to apply, you know, the liquid assets test doesn't, doesn't happen. At the four-week mark, you can get up to $600 a week rather than the old payment of $500. So they've been clever, the federal government, to establish all of this so that, you know, you go, oh, at the two-week mark, both states were the same. But that actually tells the story anyway, They had to make it that way because New South Wales did get more because they went in for longer. So, you know, that actually is part of the the story too. One more element here. Optics do matter in politics. In fact, they matter a whole lot. And the Prime Minister stood next to Gladys Berejiklian and Dominic Perrottet for some structural reasons. He is in Sydney where the lockdown is, so they could. But you know what? The fact that during that very long lockdown last year... And I know he couldn't come to Victoria and I know all the optics were also difficult, but it wasn't just because he couldn't get here, the Prime Minister. There was a feeling that he wasn't one of the Victorian community, that he, you know, he wasn't kind of barracking for Victorians. There was that feeling. Now, I'm not saying he didn't want the lockdown to be over or for people to be having nice lives. I think he did. But that matters. And that's been really dangerous for the federal government.
2: Yeah, that's true. I think that's right. Though Josh Frydenberg, of course, the Treasurer, is a Victorian. And right through the Victorian lockdowns, he's been advocating, as he says, for all those families who have kids at home and saying the school shouldn't be shut and trying to urge the the, the state government to be more nuanced in its response. So you wonder what he's hearing in his home state, which is also your home state. But in that matter of, you know, optics do matter, I think we need to sort of zoom out a bit here and say, well, yeah, they do. And what are the optics of having... you know, states and, and federal leaders bickering in the middle of a pandemic. I think few people are, are pretty unhappy with that. And I think it goes back to the issue, you know, Dan Andrews made reference to this in that statement that was so <laughs> blisteringly uh, angry when he said, why didn't the federal government use the lessons of the Victorian government to have something ready to go by now? And it goes to a the broader, more important issue, I think here, PK, which is that the federal government doesn't seem to be ramping up preparing, learning the lessons quickly enough. Now we've got the template for every lockdown in any state or territory for now on that goes for more than two weeks, but we could have and probably should have had it earlier.
1: Well, the opportunity, I think, shouldn't have just been established during the Victorian lockdown. It should have been actually delivered in the budget. And I think that it does demonstrate a kind of broader lack of planning, which is on the federal government. Uh, how could how could they not have seen that this would go on and on until we had high rates of vaccination? And so the lack of planning, I think, is an indictment on the federal government, and I think that's the story of 2021. 2020 was the story, I think, where the federal government, I'm not saying there weren't any issues, but broadly was seen as kind of getting it right. And I think the story of 2021, both on the vaccine rollout, quarantine failures, but also on on the response to these things, has shown that, you know, when you rest on your laurels, that actually this virus is a wicked thing and it catches up with you. Mm. And this Delta variant has proven to be that. And I think the complacency story is the big part of the story.
2: Yeah, I think complacency is the word. It's the story writ large when it comes to the vaccines, for sure. I mean, it's exactly what the Prime Minister is accused of in not going harder to order more vaccines from more producers when we had the chance last year. Of course, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but the Prime Minister bet heavily on AstraZeneca because we could produce it ourselves. So that looked like a smart move. Except last year, the government was being warned to spread the risk, to hedge its bets. The the opposition was saying that, you know, day in, day out. I remember Chris Bowen on my program on breakfast. I think it was way back in July and August, urging the federal government to hustle and get orders in with at least five providers. Other countries were doing that. We decided not to do it. We bet on AstraZeneca. It's had some problems, even though by a lot of measures, it's a very effective and successful vaccine the point is we need more Pfizer now we don't have it uh was complacency at the heart of that i think it it was
1: yeah and on that issue i think it's important to address the fact that the prime minister really really hit back on the vaccination story this week and made the point that we are still in the suppression phase even if we'd been tracking as we were meant to on the vaccination we would still have lockdowns and he really wants to make that point because he's. I feel like he's getting really frustrated at the blaming of him <laughs> and his government for the fact that there are lockdowns. He, but he wants... I didn't
2: understand that, PK. If we if we had a vaccine rolled out as effectively as, say, they have in Israel, where it's something like 80% of the eligible population or even higher, why would we still be having lockdowns?
1: Well, his point is not that, though. To, to be fair to the Prime Minister, his point is we were never going to be at that rate. We never promised to even if he had delivered no, on his KPIs. but surely we're aiming for that. But he never aimed for it. So maybe that's a different critique, but on his own trajectory, we would still be in the suppression phase and be having lockdowns on what they promised and then he admits they haven't met it and he blames it, really, if you listen to his words in that interview this week, on a targi for very conservative advice which set the rollout backwards. What I want to say, and I've become increasingly obsessed with making this point, so if you've heard me make it on my radio TV show, apologies, but I really want to make it. I actually agree with him. If we were on track, we would still, I believe, have a potential lockdown in Victoria, which could be looming, not yet or the one you're having in New South Wales. I'm still not with you on that, PK. You oh, sorry, you me? finish your point. You finish okay. your point. How can you not? Okay, All right. I'm saying on what they promised at this stage, we'd be at this stage and we haven't been. We would still be having lockdowns. We would. If you're at a 50% vaccination rate, you would still be having lockdowns with the Delta variant, is my point. But I want to make another point. Fewer people will go to hospital if you're at 50% or at 40% or at 30% or at 60% compared to 10. Fewer people will die. That is your aim. <laughs> it's not just about lockdowns. It's actually about people who are vaccinated knowing that they won't get as sick. That is, the, that is your job as a government to say to your citizens, we will protect you as much as we can to have the right to live, and that is where they failed because if you're a young person and you're, you can't get the vaccine, I'll give you a story. My 19-year-old niece has just been told by her GP, I hope she does not upset with me mentioning this story, that she can't get Astra, like that that she does not recommend it for her. Yeah. She does not think it's a good idea. Even though my 19-year-old niece, who's a very responsible, smart, go-getting kid, right, wants desperately to be vaccinated. Now, if she's unlucky and goes to an exposure site and gets COVID, well, she could be hospitalised. And I don't think that's acceptable. And that's the point. It's not just about lockdowns. It's about the safety of your citizens.
2: But I also think that it's, it's, it's not correct or reasonable to say, well, we're on track with the schedule we had. We had the schedule of rollout we had because we didn't have the vaccine early enough or in enough doses. And even then, when we were starting at the very beginning of this, the rollout was... So ham-fisted, as we've used said the word many many times before, it was a shamozle that we were mm-hmm. behind time even almost before we started. So if we had the um, enough doses of mRNA vaccines as well, we wouldn't have that the problem of the Atagi advice throwing the whole the whole schedule off. And we would have, we would have been able to have the the national public campaign to rally people to get vaccinated because we would have had the doses in enough numbers to give them out. You know, we know that public campaign was delayed because we just didn't have enough vaccine if people responded. So all along the way, I think the schedule would have been picked up. It, maybe we're arguing over details. It doesn't I, I matter. Think Hindsight's we are. And a wonderful I think that thing.
1: But. One thing people should love about us is that we can admit that we're both not epidemiologists. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so, I my point is that maybe a different one. We're arguing a different point, which is that if you're going to have a lockdown still, that actually every single person that you can provide healthcare to to reduce their chance of going to hospital, you've done a better job as a leader. And that is what. I think the real failure here is my heart breaks for the people in hospital right now in Sydney.
2: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And now we're seeing people in ICU. That's what we've been trying to avoid the whole way along. It's, as Kerry chant, the New South Wales Chief Health Officer keeps saying, this is not a mild disease. PK, should we bring in our guest? Let's
1: do it. (laughs) Andrew Proben is the ABC's political editor and our guest in the party room. Welcome.
0: Thanks, guys. Lovely to be back.
2: Hey Andrew, we've just been talking about complacency uh, in terms of the vaccine rollout. The federal government's been, you know, generally pretty happy to blame international supply chain issues for the lack of vaccines. But this week we got Kevin Rudd. Hello, my name's Kevin. I'm here to help. <laughs> Pair probes. This story goes to the fact that Kevin Rudd, at the urging of some Australian businessmen in New York, apparently had a phone call, phone hook up with the chair of Pfizer, Albert Bourla, in which he asked if anything could be done to help Australia out of our problems, maybe help speed up the delivery of our Pfizer doses because we need them now. Then, of course, lo and behold, a week or so later, the Prime Minister announced Australia had secured advanced delivery of four and a half million doses, which we had ordered but were expected to come a little later. The Health Minister, Greg Hunt, though, said Kevin Rudd's intervention had nothing to do with it. Let's have a listen.
1: I had a little chuckle uh, when I saw the story. I
0: respect that uh, individuals will sometimes uh, take initiatives, and we welcome and thank them. But did it make a difference? No.
2: did it make a difference? No. Individuals. He couldn't even speak his name. Probes, what do you think? Did it make a difference?
0: Look, I think there was definitely a bit of grandstanding here from uh, Kevin Rudd. Did it make it any any difference? I don't know. I, 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 sus- I suspect not. And really? I, I, su- I, I say that because I think that Pfizer has been in um, a difficult spot of its own. It has a vaccine that's clearly effective. It has a vaccine that is clearly in great need internationally had it given earlier, bigger access to Australia, there might be resentment in a global level as to why Australia, which has got very little COVID uh, in a comparative sense, why it should have got access because it might have paid more or uh, got friendly with the chief executive. So I, I, I think that we've been lucky insofar as there has been discussions in recent weeks and months about trying to do what they can to speed it up. Would a a conversation with uh, Kevin Rudd have helped? I suspect not. I think that we're just lucky that we've we've landed a bit, some extra. But it has put a a real focus on uh, whether Australia did enough to secure Mm. uh, the vaccine in sufficient number Mm. in the early days.
1: Andrew Perlman, because I think that is the most important part of this story, like the backstory of our efforts, our negotiations, and the fact that business leaders in the US did contact Kevin Rudd, right? Whether he had an effect or we not, don't know the who truth they is are. we that's, can't prove it, right?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Well, we can't prove it. You can't prove it. So, okay, park that. What you can prove, unless you know he's telling a fib, is that business leaders approached him, unnamed, but but apparently very senior business leaders because they felt like the Morrison government had dropped the ball. Now, Mm. that is an issue for the government because people agree with that. I think, you know, people feel like the Morrison government did drop the ball when it comes to securing the right supply for us of this vaccine, and that is actually at the heart of this story, is it not?
0: Well, I think at the heart of it is some people think that we didn't gamble heavily enough last year because take yourselves back to June last year. In June last year, the mRNA vaccines were largely unproven. There was some concern that it didn't have the efficacy of the traditional vaccine. Australia betted Uh, you know, a a small amount, it asked for 10 million at first. And then when those early results came through, it increased its order when the big bet, and that was on QUT, when there were problems that emerged there, then we put more, more money on Pfizer. But there have been some false comparisons, I think, in recent days about the amazing efforts in, say, for example, Israel, Israel last year went through three very, very serious lockdowns, you know, Victorian-style lockdowns. It had coronavirus raging through the nation. It had a government that was facing re-election this year, it turns out. Israel, through its prime minister, approached Pfizer to say, what can we do to get your vaccine? A vaccine which even in December last year, we didn't know a great deal about. Um, we didn't know it's full efficacy. Israel traded big time to get Pfizer vaccine. Not only did it pay a premium price, but also traded medical data. Every single Israeli's medical data was traded with Pfizer for a, a, a basically a, a real time experiment in that vaccine. Every Israeli's BMI, its the, it, it, their pre-existing conditions, their age, their gender, all of that was uh, in the hands of a, a private company, which was using it to work out not only the uh, vaccine's efficacy, and it turned out to be something like 98%, but the comparison that's been made with Australia and Israel, is a false one because can you imagine a, an Australian Prime Minister, regardless of their political stripe, going to a private company and saying, right, we're going to give you Australians um, uh, medical data? Uh, no, but wh- that what you're saying is...
2: That was a whatever it takes uh, approach by Israel's Israel, Prime Minister at the time, Benjamin Netanyahu, and the stakes were high for him. As you're saying, it was in an election cycle. He was mm. under a lot of pressure.
0: And COVID was everywhere. COVID wasn't yes. uh, in great proportions, uh, comparatively speaking, in Australia. So, Well, except the... Melbourne
2: was in a... Don't forget, Melbourne was in a lockdown for 121 days. and there. I mean, I remember the opposition spokesperson, Chris Bowen, back at the end of July, the beginning of August, saying we are behind others here. Others are spreading their risk. Others are getting their orders in. We should be getting it in too. And yes, it made sense for the Australian government to bet big time on domestic, locally made orders. But other countries were doing other things as well. And is it surprising that our Prime Minister didn't have one direct call with the chair of Pfizer internationally, this guy Albert Baller, who it was that Kevin Rudd spoke with, when we know other leaders have. We know the leader of Canada has. We know Benjamin Netanyahu rang him 30 times. Is that an indicator of just being a little bit too complacent.
0: Possibly not. I, I'm, you know, others will might disagree. But I think the fact that Pfizer does have quite a prominent role in Australia, the fact that it's it's got manufacturing hubs in Australia, but I think the context in which people were talking to Baller, the global chief, was in the context of of COVID calamity that was happening in places like Israel. Many, many people have died there, many more proportionally speaking than Australia. Pfizer was probably on, on the hunt for a good place to, to perform an experiment of its vaccine. Australia would not have been a good place for that that experiment because with the exception of Melbourne for those horrific two, three months. Didn't ha- and hasn't had a, a great deal of, of COVID cases. It, we've we've done pretty well.
1: The thing about COVID though is you don't have COVID until then you have COVID. <laughs> it's, uh, exactly. and and COVID.
0: It, it's horrible. I mean, what's going on now? And this anxiety. We are we are exposed because the vaccine rollout has been slow. There's Ooh, yeah. no doubt of that. And and the, and this Delta strain is causing all sorts of challenges because the speed with which it can go second third fourth generation as we're seeing in melbourne
1: and what it's revealed is that the the sort of contact tracing promise doesn't actually deliver necessarily for delta so the government's been trying to kind of handle its vaccination message and you know speaking of confusing public messaging there was a whole lot of people offended this week because of this very graphic ad that's been airing on sydney televisions now for those of you who haven't seen it Many of you, I think, would have. But if you haven't, the ad shows a young woman on a ventilator gasping for breath in a hospital bed. And at the end of the ad, a message reads, and and I quote, COVID-19 can affect anyone. Stay home, get tested, book your vaccination. Now, Andrew, what did you think of the ad? Because did it send the right message to Sydneysiders in lockdown right now, given some of those young people can't even get access to a vaccine?
0: And I th- Well, I think that's the heart of it. I mean, th- there are two messages. First of all, take COVID seriously. And secondly, go get a vaccine. But given that this one was clearly under 40 and under 40s don't have access to uh, vaccines unless they're in certain categories, then there was an insensitivity to it. I-, I think that the messaging over vaccine, in particular AstraZeneca, has been diabolical, diabolical, both at a government level and also from a target. Uh, ATAGI, which is the vaccine ad- advisory group no one thought we had until we uh, this crisis started, has been issuing statements which are often impenetrable to the untrained eye. It's hard to read, difficult to understand and is often reliant on people seeking the advice of GPs. And even when people are going to their GPs seeking access to AstraZeneca, many people are being told don't do it because they think that the the, the dangers are substantial. If you can't get a vaccine authority telling people whether they should or should not get a vaccine and instead rely on their own judgment after talking to a GP, I don't think that's clear enough. I think there are some... At the end of this, there's going to be some really hard questions put to not only our expert groups but also to the government as to should they at some stage have run the political lens over some of the advice that they were getting.
2: And also, I mean, is it the job of the experts to be able to deliver... A smart, clear message. Is that their job to be do the messaging or is their job just to get the advice right and we get, let's get the communications experts in that the government can provide, I presume, to make sure the messaging is clear? I guess we'll be having this conversation later when we are through this. But meanwhile, we've got ATAGI sort of in some kind of confrontation or conflict, it would seem, with the Prime Minister at the moment because the Prime Minister is now come out and said, well, you know, part of the problem with the vaccine rollout is the um, very, very cautious advice coming from our health experts. So he seemed to be saying that's a problem. And yet up until this point, the government's, one of the government's main political shields, if you like, is we're acting on the health advice that they didn't ever reveal that health advice in any great detail. They didn't necessarily say which health advice and who it was coming for in some cases, but we're acting on the health advice. That was their defence. Now, the Prime Minister seems to be saying, well, the health advice was way too cautious and that's what got us in this position we're in and that's what's to blame for the vaccine rollout.
0: Well, some of the the conversations that, you know, maybe all three of us have had in recent months it, with both public health officials and maybe some medics and maybe people in some prominent organisations representing doctors is a general frustration with ATAGI to some extent that uh, it's always been modelling this kind of low risk environment mm. in, in which Australia's yes. been existing. But sometimes we're not in that low risk environment and eventually Australia is going to have to open its borders. Eventually COVID does have to come in and circulate because that's going to be the nature of our economic and indeed the health recovery, that it has to circulate. We have to um, try and live with it at some point. Now, we're nowhere near that level yet because we haven't got sufficient vaccine rollout, I think it's it would be very frustrating, and I think it's been frustrating for Australians to have this confusing, Uh, message about AstraZeneca. I've thoroughly encouraged my parents to get AstraZeneca. Both of them have both doses without any side effects, I I might add. You know, I I, I think we should all, if we can, take a vaccine if they're offered. But the concern is widespread and and across all cohorts.
1: I want to just talk about the politics of this, because this week, the Prime Minister unleashed what I think was really scathing criticism of ATAGI, saying that, and I quote, their very cautious health recommendations had slowed down the rollout and, and got us behind. Now, it seems to me he was sort of putting that blame on on them and you know, they're just doctors or medical experts providing advice.
0: And also consumer consumer health advocates as well. ATAGI also has consumer health advocates, right? And what I think is that is missing in all this is sometimes, and and this criticism is not just from government, it's also from other people in certain agencies and advisors that that ATAGI's advice lacks the, the, the kind of the political lens. Now, when I say political lens, I'm talking about the consumer lens, like what is going to be the impact on uh, on patient confidence, community confidence, and, and I think that's what's missing.
1: Is it, yeah, well, is it is it the prime minister's? I don't hold a hose or I don't hold a sort of uh, syringe mate moment, though. You know, like oh, look, else?
0: It's undoubtedly, Pickett. I think that that this he's vulnerable on this. You know, he will be judged on the vaccine roll up above and beyond everything else. And the fact is that they gambled on on it, it turns out the wrong vaccine. Now Israel gambled its population's uh, medical data on the right vaccine and is now being celebrated. But Israel ended up having to release the agreement that it reached with with Pfizer. Now, because of what's happened in Israel, we're learning a few more things about the the Pfizer vaccine itself. Israelis are being told because coronavirus through the Delta strain is soaring again in Israel, It, it looks like efficacy of the Pfizer jab declines after six months. So they're looking at having a third jab. Interesting Well, but in hang itself. on
2: Andrew, careful on that, because I spoke to a member of the the Israeli Health Department's um, one of their vaccine committees uh, on RM breakfast and they are going for third jabs, but that's only for people with very low immune yeah, systems the, at immune the moment. System, yeah. And so what they're saying is uh, they're still measuring the efficacy how long it lasts, but what's clear is that Pfizer is working in terms of keeping people protected from serious ill health. So it's keeping hospitalizations low, it's keeping deaths low. There are a few deaths of people who have been fully immunised, but they are people who are older. Yeah. Who have been sick. Yeah. So mm. um and that's what we're seeing. That's what we're seeing here too. So I think, you know, that's what that's what is there for but
0: politically the prime minister is vulnerable on this there is a general frustration he wants to share some of of the blame uh, with those experts but you know he's to blame for <laughs> for well, he's the prime uh, minister he's yeah he is the prime minister his who, job they've they've made some big decisions multi-billion dollar decisions and some of them haven't uh, haven't turned out absolutely right but you know I think last year, we, a lot of governments were, were flying blind, but uh, going hard and going early, it turns out, is not just with lockdowns, but it's also, you do well adopting that kind of strategy in search of a vaccine.
1: hmm well, Probes, as usual, you've been a great guest. Um, please keep enjoying your ACT Canberra utopia that you're living in while <laughs> Fran's in her lockdown and I'm um, literally at the edge of my seat worried in Victoria.
0: Well, look, I, I, I still find it amazing that we are this little island. We haven't had a community transmission in the ACT for more <laughs> than a year. Let's not but, jinx you it. you know, touch wood. It's,
1: I find it really fascinating too. I can't figure it out, but I'm happy
0: for you. See you, Probes. I'm happy too. Go See well. You See you,
2: Probes. Thanks.
0: Questions without notice, the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and and I'm pleased the question time, at least, is happening, Mr Speaker.
1: The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time, the best question time of all. And this week's question comes from Edwin, who writes, I've watched more press conferences over the past year than I had in my previous 40, and I wonder... How the hell do the journalists and the speaker decide who will ask the next question? I hear the yells of Premier, Premier at the start of each question and then somehow everyone else falls silent and one person's voice remains. I don't see any obvious signal or indication from the speaker about who they choose. What am I missing? Is there a pecking order? Oh, I want to answer this so much. Um, (laughs) or, Or hand signal, I can't see. Some speakers, such as Brad Hazard, seem to get annoyed at the initial cacophony but others, such as Gladys, Gladys Lynn, just seem to look out calmly until a question emerges.
2: Edwin, my thoughts: is there a pecking order? No, not in Australia. When I went to Britain, I was the Europe correspondent based in London, and I used to go to Tony Blair press conferences. I was absolutely gobsmacked that there was a pecking order of the top journos, and they all sat in the fr- I sat in the front row by mistake because that's what I used to do, and basically got short shrift. And um, they did have a pecking order, but not in in Australia. In fact, I was watching Annabelle. Crab's series on women in politics the other night, which can I recommend? It's absolutely fantastic. And there was a, a shot of me in a media throng way back, way, way back when I used to go to all the doorstops. And what I discovered was that actually one of my superpower is asking questions that get answered at doorstops. And what is that superpower? I don't know. I just had a voice that sort of cut through or was impertinent or something. I'm not sure. But I, from my experience, it's. Um, it's the luck of the draw. It's just being assertive with the question, keeping eye contact, and off you go. But, PK, how do you oh, see it?
1: I, I half see it as you have described it, but I, I probably would be a bit um, more pointed in my comments. I do think there's a little bit of a pecking order, not quite as you describe it in the UK, right? So I'm not arguing that. But there is a sense of... You know, if you're one of the journos that's senior that the Prime Minister or the Premier knows, right, they will come to you instinctively more because of that kind of respect for the fact that you're always there and you're always the one writing the big stories. I do think that happens, absolutely. But it's not so much a pecking order in that if you are a, let's say, nobody, I'm just saying that word, not, yeah, not yeah. pejoratively, I've been a nobody. If you're girl, a newcomer. Yeah, that you won't have the right to ask because you will, Right. But then it's about – I'm sorry, people will know that I – it's just I can't help myself, but I'm going to go there. Gender. Oh, gender. Hello, gender. Gender. I think there's still a culture where men with booming voices get a bit of extra airplay. But what I've noticed is that good leaders actively try and manage that. So there's actually really interesting stuff going on in this space at the moment, the premier will go, oh, okay, I've taken a few male questions, or the prime minister, I've noticed it. They're really, really? aware of it. Yeah, they're really aware of it. It is good because they know it looks really bad if they just take the booming voices. And yeah. then it comes to gender, but then it also comes to personality. Now, I reckon you're, you've got that superpower because, let's be honest, Fran, you know. I think you're lovely, but you're a, you're a full on journalist. I've also had the same superpower, right? But uh, I don't go to them anymore because I'm in, you know, I'm doing different role. But when I used to go to them, yeah, I used to be able to get right in there too. I have a booming voice. I find it, people find it hard to talk over me. Mm. So it does take a bit of, it's about the way you are. And it's unfortunate actually that it's it's the case because I do think it sometimes gives a bit of preference to certain personality styles and, and I don't think they're always the best personality styles including my own.
2: (laughs) There is one thing I will say in that I remember back in the press gallery in the years I spent there which was a lot of years whenever Laurie Oakes would turn up at a press conference which was very rare it was very seldom, but whenever he did, it's like the, uh, the press pack parted and yes. Laurie got to ask his question. So there certainly is a little of that that goes on.
1: I think that sometimes it is we kind of um, manage our own, our own behaviour. And I will say this too, because it's been a long time since I was a young upstart. But when I used to getting there as a young upstart, sometimes some of the senior journalists did look at you like, I'll get real. And you'd have to be a bit bolshy to push through that and to back yourself, right? To back yourself is key. To go, well, I, I know that you're like more important than me and earn $700 million more, but I am here and I've got a question. Yeah. Uh, I will say too that I think when Michelle Grattan's at a press conference,
2: most leaders always make sure they take a question and personally I think that's only right.
1: There you go. See, you think it's only right. That's a pecking order. <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> Send your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag ThePartyRoom or email your questions to ThePartyRoom at abc.net.au.
2: And you can follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app, of course, or
1: your favourite podcast app. So that's it for The Party Room this week. Uh, We'll be back in your feeds next week. See you, PK. See you, Fran.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.